Good morning. Good morning. We're going to sing a little bit more in just a little while after we spend a little time in God's Word. And uh, so I know it was a little shorter song set, but we're going to we're going to get back to that. And you sang like you believed those words. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Jesus, our life house. Well, all right. We're going to enjoy God's Word together. I'm going to ask if you wouldn't mind grabbing your Bible or your phone or iPad. Let's uh, head to the epistle of 1 John, which will be almost to the very end of your Bible. Uh, 1 John chapter 3. Uh, there's a little note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you wouldn't mind. And if you need a Bible today, you'd like to have a Bible, we can supply that. If you didn't bring one with you today, just raise your hand and Charlie will be sure to get God's word into your hands. Many of you are old enough to be familiar with the name Francis Schaeffer. Would that be accurate? A number of you would know that name, Francis Schaeffer, yeah? Yeah, he was one of the church's leading voices in the mid to late last century. He was an apologist, an evangelist, he was an author, and he died in 1984. But 14 years before his death, he wrote a book titled The Mark of a Christian. And here's how he introduces this book. He says, through the centuries, people have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn pins on the lapels of their coats. They've hung chains about their necks and even bracelets and armbands as well. Of course, there's nothing wrong with any of this if one feels it is his calling. But there is a much better sign, a mark that has not been thought up just as a matter of expediency for use on some special occasion or in some specific era. It is a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. What is this mark? At the close of his earthly ministry, Jesus looks toward his death on the cross, the open tomb, and his ascension. And knowing that he is about to leave his disciples, he prepares them for what is to come. It is here that he makes clear what will be the distinguishing mark of the Christian. From John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then Francis Schaeffer concludes with these words. This passage reveals the mark that Jesus gives to label a Christian, not just in one era or in one locality, but at all times and in all places until Jesus comes back. Love one another. Now, we're all together in 1 John chapter 3. Let me draw your attention to verses 11 through 18, which is the newest part of our ongoing study series in 1 John. Here's what John writes to the church. For this is the message that we have heard from the that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, as our Bibles lay open to this place this morning, we would come to you and seek your face. By your spirit, be our teacher in these moments. Heavenly Father, I ask you, uh, if you would please just allow me to be the mouthpiece for you this morning and nothing more. Just a way for you to communicate with your people in, a, in hopefully a way that is clear and practical. Do not allow me to get in the way, but may you be clearly communicating to your people today. We want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. Bring your word to life now in Jesus' strong name. And we all said together, amen, amen. First John, as we have been discovering in this study series, Being Real Christians in an Unreal World, is a little letter with enormous things to say to the church as a whole, but also to each one of us as individuals within the church. It is an especially uncomfortable letter for anyone who is simply playing at Christianity, One foot in the church and one foot in the world, wanting just enough Christianity to feel good about one's chances of of going to heaven, but not so much Christianity that it actually impacts your life and changes the way you live. This is an uncomfortable book for someone who's in that place. One foot in the world and one in the church. The Apostle John wrote 1 John for Christians so that they would know with absolute certainty what it means to be a Christian, to be real in the Lord Jesus. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 5, John hammers away at fake Christianity by making absolute statements about what real Christians believe, how they behave, and how they love. John would say that you can always tell the fake from the real in those three ways, by what a person believes by how they behave and by how they love. First John, quite frankly, forces us into polarities, light and darkness, love and hate, children of God and children of the devil. There are no, there's no middle ground for John. There's, there's no faith straddling allowed. The Holy Spirit in first John forces us to ask, which side am I really going to be on? Which side am I on today in my life? It's not about what I say. It's about what I do. And that not as a requirement for my salvation, but rather as an evidence that I'm really saved. What I believe, how I behave, how I love. Evidences, tangible confirming evidences that we really are the real deal. Lovers of the Lord Jesus in a world that does not know him. Amen? Amen. Now, as you could easily tell from our reading of chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, we're going to be spending time in that that third area, the area of how we love as a proof of being real. 
Brothers and sisters, today you and I are going to be challenged in this passage to look hard at ourselves and, and really consider if the love of Jesus is being reflected in, in our lives. And, and, not, and not just if it is, but, but, but how it is being reflected in our lives. It might get a little uncomfortable for us, a little bit hot under the collar at a few places along the way, but that's okay, isn't it? If it will press us to become more accurate reflections of the Lord Jesus, are you okay with a little bit of uncomfortable? You okay with being pressed to consider how you love one another in this place and outside of this place? I hope we're okay, okay with that because that should be our heart's desire. Let's step in and let's see what's waiting for us in this passage. As you can see on your note page, John begins by drawing sharp contrasts between love and and hate. And we really ought to be getting used to John's style by now. If, if, if John has a point to make, man, he, he draws the lines very deeply and very sharply. He doesn't mess around. If we go back up to verse 9 of chapter 3, and we get a running start at all of this, you'll recall from last Sunday morning when we were in this part of, of John's letter, John says in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In other words, you don't, you're just not going to have a lifestyle of sinning, sinning it up if you really are in Jesus Christ. You won't do that. For God's seed abides in him, John says, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. John says, listen, you can tell the real from the fake follower of Jesus by how they behave. Do they continually run to sin and, and then return to it without remorse or regret? If that's how a person is living their life, then, then that, that's not real. They're not real. The real can't do that, John says. They can't do that. And then verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, it's that last phrase in verse 10, the one who does not love his brother, that would cause John now to move into this new section of verses 11 to 18 uh, as a further evidence of being real. He wants to talk about love that flows out of a real Christian's life. Verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. John refers back to a core command that, that his readers had heard from the very begin of, beginning of their introduction into faith in Jesus Christ, in their introduction into Christianity. We should love one another, John says. Of all the points that he stresses in his pastoral ministry, this is the touchstone for John, this thing called love. Out of your love for Jesus, love others well. He's, he's known as the disciple of love. Love one another, especially the brothers and sisters who share your passion for Jesus. From the very beginning, this is what you have been taught, John says, from the very start. And John would say that because from the very beginning of his experience with Jesus, that is what he had been taught by Jesus himself. Remember those words again that we read at the very outset. John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says this on the night before he's crucified. 
He says, a new commandment I give to you that you what? You love one another. Yes, you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people are going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. Go for it. That's great. Love that. Jesus' command to all who are real, love each other. John takes that and then he draws a stark and we would say even a brutal contrast between what Jesus is famous for, his love for us, and what another Bible character is infamous for. And that is his hate. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Murder. It's the ultimate act of hate, is it not? It, is, it, it demonstrates the absence of love in the most extreme way. To drive that point home, John inserts the only Old Testament reference that he makes in his entire letter, drawing our attention to what happens in Genesis chapter 4 and to Cain, the very first murderer. Genesis chapter 4. It tells the story of two brothers, the, the two sons of, of Adam and Eve. Cain, he's the oldest brother, and he's a farmer. And we learn in that passage that Abel is the younger brother and he is a shepherd. And they represent then the first generation after the human race has been plunged into sin by the choices that Adam and Eve made in Genesis chapter 3. Immediately we learn in the first generation how sad and savage and powerful sin is. Both brothers come before God in an act of worship. They're going to offer sacrifice. And this is well before uh, God will instruct Moses on how uh, the people are to bring offerings and worship to him. This is, this is way before that. But the narrative implies that God has let these two brothers know very clearly what constitutes acceptable worship, what constitutes acceptable sacrifice. They know. And so Abel brings an animal sacrifice from his flocks, and God is pleased with that offering, we're told. Cain, on the other hand, in an act of all that we conclude is, is, is defiance and self-styled religion. He ignores God's instruction and he brings an offering of vegetables from his field. God refuses to acknowledge that offering. Instantly, an evil that was already residing within Cain's heart is fanned into a flame of raging hatred towards Abel though Abel has done absolutely nothing wrong. Cain's wounded pride and, and his jealousy of Abel's accepted offering grew into a hate that was so strong that it actually drove Cain to murder his brother. In fact, the Hebrew word for what Cain does in murdering his brother is the Hebrew word for butcher or slaughter. So it conveys a very violent death that Cain visited upon Abel. Thankfully, this is the last time in human history that siblings are ever jealous towards one another. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. No, John informs us by means of Holy Spirit insight here why Cain does this. And why did he murder him? John asks, because his own deeds were what? Evil. 
evil and his brothers were righteous. And because he was of the evil one. Do you notice that? He's of the evil one. That Cain was of the evil one means that he belonged to the kingdom of darkness, which is led and ordered and directed by none other than Satan himself, right? John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus tells us a little bit about Satan. And he tells us that Satan is a liar and that he is the father of lies and that he has been a murderer from the very beginning. And that murdering heart of Satan is expressed in the heart of Cain. John would have had no reservation at all of calling Cain a child of the devil, just as he does in verse 10. Children of the devil, all who do not know Jesus. John will say that in verse 10 of this chapter. So for Cain, for John, Cain serves kind of as the the perfect archetype for a God-dismissing, Jesus-rejecting, sinful heart or humanity. Hate, not love, death, not life, Uh, a taker, not a giver, a murderer, not a martyr. And this goes a long way towards explaining why the unbelieving world's default setting uh, is against those who identify with Jesus in, in saving faith. It's because they are of the evil one. John says in verse 13, for that reason, don't be surprised. If the world what? Hates you. Do not be surprised if the world hates you and you love Jesus. It's almost like John's returning to the upper room on the night before Jesus went to the cross. There with him and the other disciples, Jesus warned his followers that that there would be a price, a, a fairly steep price. In fact, a potentially very steep price for loving him. There's a steep price always for loving Jesus. If you're going to be real, there's a price to pay for that. And here's what Jesus says to his disciples, to you and me. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. We'll put it up on the screen for you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Now think, think about why Jesus was murdered, crucified murdered was what was it that that drove the 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 hearts of the religious leaders of israel and and the roman accomplices who joined them in the murder of jesus what what drove the day there's a tangled list of motives to be sure politics power games and all of that but at the core the people hated jesus and for what For what did they hate him? For all the healing that he did? For all the the miracles that he performed? For all the demons that he cast out? For all the dead people that he raised? Is that why they hated him? That's a terrible reason to hate somebody. That's not why they hated him. 
Jesus will tell us exactly why they hated him. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Who's the light? It's Jesus. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness. Yes, the darkness. Rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Darkness hates light, right? Satan hates God. Cain hated Abel. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The devil hates you and me for loving Jesus. All that is needed for darkness to be stirred into hate is for a little bit of light to shine, right? Do you believe that? That's what Jesus says. And are we not seeing this with increasing frequency in our culture, in our world today? This hatred of the darkness toward the light. You know, there was a time in our culture when Christianity was not openly mocked or vilified. In fact, it was respected. Our nation was built on on biblical principles and and on the belief in 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 a sovereign God. Today, regularly though, Christianity is mocked. Why? Why is holding belief in a sovereign God a crucified risen savior and ascribing to a moral universe of right and wrong on such social issues as abortion or same-sex marriage, why are those things berated and ridiculed and chided and vehemently so today in our culture? Why is that? Is it just a coincidence that it's always the, the, the Christian's worldview that is mocked? Or is that simply proof of what Jesus just told us? That people love what? The darkness and hate the light. John says, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world would hate you. If you love the light, the world's going to hate you. Don't be surprised. So this hatred by the world betrays a spiritual reality that is as old as Cain and Abel. No surprises. Hate reveals that someone is spiritually living in darkness. Estranged from God, there is no salvation in them. Hate is a sign that someone is is lost, enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan. The opposite, though, is also true. When there is a genuine, authentic, practical love for others in a person's life, especially love for others in the community of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is a reliable indicator of a life and a heart that has been transformed by faith in Jesus. A life in which the spiritual darkness has been flooded with the love of God in Christ and and the one who was spiritually dead is now fully alive. And And a once hateful heart Perhaps a murderous heart has been remade into one that loves. That's proof of the transformation. If you flip your note page over, John says precisely this in verse 14. We, what's the next word? 
We know. Underline, circle, highlight that word in your Bible. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we what? We love the brothers. We love the brothers and sisters, the community of faith. Do you recall the words of, of over in chapter 5 of this same little letter, verse 13? We've looked at them so many times in the course of our, of our study series because these, this is the verse that tells us why John wrote the letter to begin with. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is why I write the letter. The Holy Spirit tells us as plain as it can be stated that we can know that the life of God abides in us when the love of God flows through us, right? We can know. We can have assurance We never have to hope that we've passed out of spiritual death into spiritual life with God forever. We can be assured of that reality because we love one another. That's verse 14. Faith in who Jesus is, faith in what he has done, brings life to the spiritually dead, turning hateful, even murderous hearts and attitudes into loving ones. But verse 14 continues. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a what? A murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In God's eyes, as I read verse 14, in God's eyes, hatred is the moral equivalent of what? Murder. It is the moral equivalent of murder. Thus, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It is true, of course, that only a small percentage of people ever murder somebody. But countless numbers have been angry enough to do so, right? Beyond number, people have been angry enough to murder and would have done so had the circumstances been favorable and there weren't severe consequences for doing so. The only outward difference between murder and hate is the act. But the underlying foundational attitude is the same in both. Hate. Now, if we doubt that, that God looks at murder the same way he looks at hate and vice versa, all we need to do is remember the words of Jesus From the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You know these words. You've heard them, read them yourself. You've heard that it was said that those to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, Jesus says, I say, God says to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh, man. Jesus is saying that in God's eyes, hatred is the moral equivalent of murder, which means that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, it'd be easy for someone to think, well, I certainly haven't murdered anyone. I must be okay with God. I haven't murdered anybody. You ever heard anybody say that? 
I've never murdered anybody. Jesus and I must be good to go, right? We're good to go. I've never murdered. The attitude that is behind every murder, which is hatred, is it's, it's deadly. And you don't have to commit the murder in order to commit the sin of murder, which is hatred. And it is worthy of divine judgment. Jesus says that. Vast numbers across the earth right now look for assurance. They look for acceptance by God, assurance of salvation by what they do not do, by what they don't do. I don't do this. I don't do that. I don't murder. I must be a Christian, spiritually defined by what I don't do, right? John won't let us fall into that deadly trap. He would say that love, real love, love that is the evidence that you are really saved isn't just the absence of something in your life, the absence of hatred. John would say that that the proof of your being real in Jesus is the presence of something else. Not the absence of something, but the presence of something. And that something else is the presence of a self-giving love for other people. Do you have that as an evidence of real? Verse 16. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for what? For the brothers, for each other. Sometimes Bible references help us to remember things. Now this is 1 John 3.16 but it sounds an awful lot like another Bible verse. Which one? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. God loved the world and that love produced within him a desire to give himself. Self-giving love. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. Self-giving love. When John talks about love, it's it's never abstract. It's never theoretical kinds of love. He isn't talking about gooey sentimental love. He's not talking about romantic or, or, or a friendship kinds of love. He certainly isn't talking about love talk. This is how we know what real love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. This is self-giving, self-sacrificing love. This is what we call in Christianity agape love. The Greek word for this, love, self-giving love. It's the love that is the opposite of the world's hate. Hate is a taker. Hate is a murderer. Hate takes a life. Hate wants the worst for the other person. Hate wishes the other person wasn't there. Hate is darkness. Hate is evil. Oh, but there is a kind of love that reveals that we are real, real Christians. It's a love that doesn't take. It's a love that gives. It's a love that doesn't do the worst for another person. It wants only the best. It is a love that will sacrifice itself for the good of another person. 
It's the love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. These verses will be familiar to you. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And before that chapter in 1 Corinthians is done, it will say that these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these three is love. Yeah. Oh, what love is this when Jesus died on the cross for you and me. Calvary love. God bleeding for us. God suffering for us. God dying in our place. Jesus laying down his life for us. He died for our sin. He died for our shame. He died for our salvation. Oh, what love. John never thinks about sentimental love that only loves in words or feelings. Go to the cross and see what real love is, John would say. Because that's where it's on display in the most beautiful and powerful way. Bloody, selfless, exhausted, total commitment. And then verse 16 says, And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The mark of a true Christian Christian, is someone who has embraced by faith Love's ultimate expression as modeled by Jesus. Self-giving love. This was certainly not lost on other writers of the New Testament. As John recalls the words of Jesus on the eve of the crucifixion, he reminds us in John 15, as Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone do what? Lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest demonstration of love, Jesus says. Self-giving love. Or the Apostle Paul, he turns in this direction in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves which, which is in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind did Jesus have? Well, he... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have Jesus' mind in you, Paul says. Self-giving love. And the Apostle Peter will exhort us in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. By God's design, his love in us, by faith in Jesus, becomes his love through us to touch the lives of other people. His love in us becomes his love through us to touch other people. God's love in us changes us fundamentally. And this is not something that we do. This is not something that you and I have to to try to make happen. I I need to love more. I'm going to work really hard at being a lover. That's not our job. 
That's the amazing sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life when Jesus is really in your life. God's love in us will be produced. It will happen. You don't have to make it happen. It's how you know you're real. It's because it's happening. The light of Jesus shining in the darkness. And what will this love look like? What will it look like? Well, that's verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide or live in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Again, John refuses to to keep love at that, that abstract, disconnected, theoretical level. He doesn't let us love with fuzzy generalities. He takes us right down to the street level where we live. If anyone has the world's goods, that means if we, if we have material means, material possessions, and we see a brother in need, and it doesn't define the need, does it? It, 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 it doesn't tell us how they came to have the need. Unforeseen circumstances, a tragic loss, a a personal act of foolishness, even sinful choices. John doesn't go into how the need happened. He says, when you see a brother in need, what do you do? You love them in a self-giving way. And, And brother here. It really needs to to be understood. Most Bible scholars certainly understand it to mean uh, primarily fellow Christians, brothers, sisters in Christ. But we know that the throw of this is much larger than that. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 would remove all doubt about that thought. You remember when this lawyer comes to Jesus and the lawyer asks, Who's my neighbor? Who is it that I'm called upon before God to assist or to help? Who's my neighbor? Do you remember what Jesus does with that? He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan and concludes the parable by simply saying, listen, your neighbor is anybody who has a need, whose need you know about, and you have some ability to meet. That's your neighbor. John asks, if if one is a professing Christian and sees another Christian in need and closes his heart to him or her, turns his back, feels no compassion for their distress, and and, then just kind of says, well, be warm and be fed, have a great day. How can the love of God live in that kind of heart? John says it can't happen. Professing lover of Jesus, if we cannot love the church members around us, what point is there talking about those who aren't Christians yet who live out there? That's John's point. That's why he confines himself to talking about brothers and sisters. If you can't love brothers and sisters, let's not talk about going beyond that. Galatians 6, 9 and 10, though, Paul kind of throws the throws the light on all this. And he says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Everyone, whether they know Jesus or not, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yeah. 
God's kind of love doesn't move away from a need. It turns into the need personally and sacrificially within and outside of the church. And we get that. We know that. Jesus saw the widow burying her son and he felt compassion for her, responded to her, raised her son from the dead. He saw Martha and Mary weeping outside of their brother's tomb. He came alongside and he cried with them. And then he raised Lazarus from the dead. He saw the masses of people who were diseased and and, and infirmed and and afflicted and and demon-possessed. And he had compassion on them. And he healed them of all of their diseases. He even saw those who were caught up in sin like the woman in caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and he, he comes to her and he loves on her and he forgives her. He had compassion for her. That's, that's how we love, John says. That's how Jesus says we love. Self-giving love. And it becomes another proof, an authenticating, validating, confirming evidence that the love of God is really in us because it is flowing out through us and it is touching other people. That's divine love. It's practical compassion. Some creative soul, not me, pondering John's words here in chapter 3, coined a new word to capture John's intent. Compaction. Compassion in action. Compaction. I like that. Not loving in word or talk, but loving in deed and action. Compaction. We all know how easy it is to hide behind thoughts like, well, I give to my church, I'm faithful with my offering, and our church gives, and our church ministers, and we help the help center, and we buy food vouchers at Thanksgiving, and we do Christmas share, and we support Life Choice Pregnancy Center, and, and we, we support Allendale's ministry to abused children, and, 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 and then we think, that's love. That's love. I'm loving. I'm giving my offering. And then my church does all these things. But that's a rather easy love, is it not? That's a fairly detached kind of love. I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis when he said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Hmm. The love that John is thinking of in verses 17 and 18 is very personal, is it not? A brother, a sister, a single family. And, and, and church family, it's in that moment with that individual brother or sister or family. What we feel in that moment, what we do in that moment with our feelings, that's the real test of whether love Self-giving love is there or not, is in that moment. We know about a need. We have a means to meet the need. Will we meet the need? Will we love? You know, more than sitting through a a thousand sermons on how to love or reciting a pithy quote from C.S. Lewis, those moments, those moments, those individual moments with a brother or sister or, or a family, That says more about our spirituality than anything else. Do we talk our love or do we 
act. Come action. Few of, few of us would ever say that we love enough. We would hum, humbly say we have a long way to go. And it's true. But please hear this. The point the Holy Spirit is trying to make in these verses, 11 to 18, is not that you and I go out now and we try to really love better. We try to love, 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 love more, 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 more. That's not what this passage is about. If that's our takeaway from this passage, I believe we've missed the mark by a mile. We don't have to go out and try to love more. All our loving of others is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do I get the gospel? The love and compassion in my life for others is an evidence that I really understand what Jesus did for me. I really get it. I grasp personally the amazing love of God for me through Jesus. I get it. I get how I don't deserve this amazing love gift from God to me. I get God's unmerited grace lavished upon me. A sinner who does not deserve heaven but hell. I get it. And when I love God in, in, for, for what he has done for me, then his love flows out of me to other people. And if I don't get that, then I'm just working out of my own strength. I don't have to try to love another person. You don't have to try to love them. If Jesus is loved by you, then the love of Jesus will flow through you to another person. That's John's point. That's John's point. It's what Jesus said. By this all people are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So is the love of God in us moving us beyond words to actual action and involvement? Is that happening in your life and in mine? Brothers and sisters, if we're real, it's going to be there. We're going to see it. Each of us knows right now someone who needs the love of God tangibly and practically brought to them. We all know someone like that right now. They need compassion in action. Now, maybe that person... That, that you know is, is right across the aisle from you. They need your love. They need the love of God through you. Maybe that person's on the other side of the room. You'll need to walk over there after church. Maybe they're on the other side of the street that you live on. Someone needs love, the love of God, and, and God will love them through you. Maybe you'll have to go to another town or maybe to another state. You make the walk, you make the visit, you make the phone call, you, you give the gift, you forgive the offense, you extend the hand, you offer your help, you love. Because that's what Jesus did for you. That's what he did for me. Love for others is God's love for us flowing through us to others. That makes us real. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. 
Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. It is true, we have so far to go as we talk about these things. All we can say to you is thank you for loving us and may you have the freedom to love others through us for your glory. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for transforming our lives. May we love you. And then out of our love for you, love others, both within our church family and beyond our doors. May we be real. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.